Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for the first three episodes of Harley Quinn Season 3, streaming now on HBO Max, and the first three episodes of the Amazon Prime series Paper Girls. Be warned. Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and more. In today's episode, on the previous on, we'll be discussing Warner Brothers and DCU's cancellation and shelving of Batgirl, among many other properties. In the airlock, we'll be discussing season three of Harley Quinn. We'll be discussing the ongoing adaptation of Paper Girls and in the hive mind. Oh, guess what, folks? Big interview. We were super, super lucky to get this pair. I didn't know if we could get them. It was like really hard to nail it down with the schedule. It, it, it was almost impossible. They almost big-timed us, but we got them. We're talking to... Uh, superstar Godzilla creators Rosie Knight and Oliver Ono, uh, the creative team behind Godzilla vs. Batra. In the Nerd Out, a listener tells us about gargoyles. And to talk about all of that today, joining me now is the number one comics encyclopedia, the number one Godzilla maven, Godzilla writer, Godzilla creator, the number one analyzer of all things comic book industry. It is the one, the only, Rosie Day! Hello! I'm, I'm pulling double duty. <laughs> guest, guest and co-host. <laughs> How are you, Rosie? Good, good, hot. It's hot in LA at the moment. It is hot. It's, it's been hot. really, really, really hot, hot folks. What's human. so? How has been? You've been. Um, I, I saw that you were uh, signing the yes. g- your, uh, your Godzilla one shot uh, for our giveaways. Uh, how's it been? How's it been to hold it in your hands? How's it been to see it? It has been pretty amazing. Comics are like every business and every publishing business. It can be slightly. Uh, erratic knowing whether or not your book's going to come out so even though we knew it was going to come out this week actually going to secret headquarters and seeing the amazing jewels and 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 just like and chris and just being able to see the books and touch them and all of his art looks so amazing and the books are great and the cover is great and everything about it looks great nathan the letterer did like an amazing job on the letters so it feels very nice i i don't i'm not a review reader my anxiety is too no, high. No, don't do but that. Lo- don't never I don't, read I reviews. Never that's do what it. I. That's, I don't ever read reviews. Just that's how we stay what, sane. That's how we say. I just want to tell the audience one thing. We tell we you know I, we ask every episode for the five star ratings. I do it all the time. I've been doing it since been twenty days. I literally never ever. I don't ever read the reviews. I don't ever go to YouTube and read the YouTube reviews. Mm-hmm. I don't go to Reddit. I don't. It's too. 
It's too painful. Mm-hmm. I will tell – let me tell a short story. One time while recording a podcast that I'm not going to name, working with a producer at the time, uh, uh, at the, uh, this was early in my podcasting career, and the producer uh, texted me and my co-host like some Apple podcast reviews. And like it was one – good review and then half of because it was a screenshot half of a negative review that mentioned me by name and was about Death. like my performance on this on this on this ongoing podcast and what a weird voice I had and how annoying it was and I was like is it are because I was just this just starting to work with this person and again was early in my podcast career I was like wait is this are you trying to are you trying to tell me something like do I need mm-hmm. to, what happened? And it was it th- fucked me up for a while. Yeah. And so I don't I don't search anything out, Rosie. You're doing exactly the right thing. Right? Don't read the reviews. I exactly. trust the people who I work with. I trust the people that I trust to tell me if something was good or bad. And yep. otherwise I just release it into the world and walk away and I try not to think about it. Both praise and criticism. Yeah. I just kind of cut it off. And the good thing is about it is the reason that it's so important for people to write like for us for five five star reasons is for other people who want to listen to the podcast. Like that's yeah. what we want is to bring more read. So yeah, I'm not I'm not a review reader, but I have had some nice people tag me on Instagram, comic shops that have picked it as a pick of the week and have had people who really enjoyed it. So that's very cool. And we do have a very cool giveaway, which actually I can just talk about now, I guess. Yeah, let's talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Secret Headquarters are amazing. The great uh, the best. The best wonderful shop um one of our very kind and generous listeners uh brandon donated some copies of the comic to that shop to support the shop and to support the podcast and we decided that the best thing to do about it was to give them away so if you go to secret headquarters which is in los angeles in person and you buy something you can tell them you listen to X-Ray Vision, or you can say XRV Pod, and they will give you a copy. But we know not everyone lives in Los Angeles. And Jules, who is at Secret Records, is incredibly kind. So Jules has also set it up. So if you buy something online from Secret Headquarters, you can add Godzilla to your basket and it will cost one cent. So it's essentially free. And there's going to be a limited amount. So do that. Go buy something cool from Secret Headquarters. And then you can get a copy of the Godzilla comic signed by me and Oliver. Just because you listen to this podcast Woo! and we love you. <laughs> I love it. And once those are gone, I have bought uh, I have bought some as well. I will get you and Oliver to sign them. And then we'll give them out here on the pod once the secret headquarters ones are gone. Yes. Um, that is fantastic. Boy, it is, uh, it is an action pack previously on. So let's get mm-hmm. to it. It's been a busy week in the world of sports, and Take Line is discussing it all. First, host Jason Concepcion, who's that, talks to Miles Simmons, a reporter with NBC Sports and Pro Football Talk, about the sexual misconduct allegations against Cleveland Brown quarterback Deshaun Watson. Then, Will Guillory of The Athletic gives us his take on the new weight clause added to Pelican teammate Zion Williamson's contract. That wording makes it seem as if Will Guillory plays with Zion Williamson on the Pelicans. He does not, but it would be cool if he did. Keep updated on all sports news by listening to Take Line every Tuesday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Folks, welcome to Previously On, where we talk about what's going on uh, in the news. And the big news is Batgirl, among many other 
uh, properties mm. has been canceled. Tuesday evening, the New York Post ran a story that the upcoming Batgirl film uh, has been, quote, shelved by Warner Brothers. This is the film starring Leslie Grace, um, who you might remember from In the Heights. Uh, and uh, the story was subsequently confirmed by Deadline, Variety, and The Hollywood Reporter. The film uh, is reported to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $90 million, was directed by Ms. Marvel directors Adil El Arbi and Bilal Salah, and starred, of course, Leslie Grace from In the Heights as Batgirl and Brendan Fraser as Firefly. Uh, the, the film also reportedly uh, uh, contains a really splashy appearance from Michael Keaton reprising his uh, 19 late 80s, early 90s uh, role as Batman, J.K. Simmons, also as Commissioner Gordon. This is like a star-studded movie. Mm-hmm. And it left a lot of people being like, wait, what the fuck? How do you spend 90, 80 and it was some finished. odd million? And it was it done. It finished shooting and was in deep in post-production and it even screened. So this it, was a movie that people thought was done. And and. It had been scored as well by the audience. Now, there are competing mm-hmm. versions about what the audience scores said, but the range is anywhere from poor to good, and which is confusing because it's not like you can uh, – there are any paucity of examples of uh, – straight up bad comic book movies coming out <laughs> of the theaters uh, in a world in which Morbius was released le- twice. legitimately twice. Um, <laughs> s- this follows uh, Wonder Twins, the movie starring Riverdale's K.J. Appa and 1883's Isabel May, which were slated to premiere on HBO Max but were canceled in May. So the question that many, many, many people are asking is, OK, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, according to The Post, uh, it was poor screenings. They think, uh, quote, a source says, quote, they think uh, an unspeakable Batgirl is going to be irredeemable. And this led the studio to cut its losses for the sake of the brand. But other reports, most notably The Hollywood Reporter and Variety, make it pretty clear that the consistent theme here is some kind of tax write down is saving mm-hmm. money. Uh, Warner Brothers has just merged with Discovery, uh, creating the new entity Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, This is kind of a thing that happens whenever mergers happen. And to add to that, new Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav uh, seems like he has come in with a mandate to just save money. So it appears the issue is money. Uh, but it is still insanely confusing. Here, uh, Warner Brothers released a statement on Tuesday, quote, the decision not to release Batgirl reflects our leadership strategic shift as it relates to the DC Universe and HBO Max. Leslie Grace is an incredibly talented actor. This decision is not a reflection of her performance. We are incredibly grateful to the filmmakers of Batgirl and Scoob. Scoob also getting shelved in this. Holiday Haunt and their respective casts, and we hope to collaborate with everyone again in the near future. Uh, uh, unlikely. Unlikely. Uh, <laughs> Adil and Bilal, who were celebrating Adil's wedding in Morocco, responded uh, via Instagram, quote, we are saddened and shocked by the news. We still can't believe it. As directors, it's critical that our work be shown to audiences. And while that film was far from finished, we wish that fans all over the world would have the opportunity to see and embrace the final film themselves. Maybe one day they will, inshallah. Uh, they follow uh, with praise for the cast. 
and finish with, in any case, as huge fans of Batman since we were little kids, it was a privilege and an honor to have been a part for the DCEU, even if it was for a brief moment, Batgirl, for life. Uh, adding more spice to the stew, uh, other Warner Brother films have disappeared from HBO Max, according to a, a Variety article from today on Wednesday. Moonshot, uh, the remake of uh, Witches by Robert Zemeckis, and An American Pickle uh, from Seth Rogen have all been pulled from the streamer. It's not atypical for movies to come and go from streamers. That happens all the time as IP rights holders uh, switch ownership. Uh, but usually the changes are announced in advance. So this is a little bit mysterious as to why this happened. Yeah. And also multiple stories that have come out today have noted that uh, most notably in the rap, uh, which, you know, take it with a grain of salt about the rap. But uh, apparently there is a lot of talk that HBO Max is going to go through a restructuring with uh, anyone that has a, a redundant job now that uh, Discovery has been rolled into HBO Max, being let go. And this is a thing that everybody's expecting. Rosie, your thoughts? I mean, the whole thing is very, like you said, I think you make a really good point. To just remember, these things happen when mergers happen. Yeah. Right. But yes. we we have lived through an age where we have seen many huge mergers, specifically yeah. Disney mergers. Right. Now, this is definitely one of the messiest, publicly messiest mergers that we've seen. It seems like the Batgirl directors did not find out very far ahead of, if ahead of at all, the public announcement of this news. There is a lot about this that seems confusing, especially because a lot of the original response to the Batgirl news was, why don't they just send it to HBO Max? But this right. was a movie that was meant to be made for HBO Max. And this seems to be the issue. There's been multiple reports. And this comes to those original... The, the strangest thing about American Pickle, The Witches, uh, Moonshot, which, by the way, I love. I would say go and watch on HBO Max. It's not there anymore. Now you can just rent it, I guess, because they won't need I, well, to pay for it. Yeah, I should say this is also... This whole thing is a... As much as you can, if you can, buy physical media. That's yes, it. Buy, yes, buy yes, stuff. Yes. It is. Buy stuff. No, it is. Because like, I'm not going to lie. that So Moonshot, for example, I, I love yeah. physical media. I have VHS collection. I have a ton yeah. of DVDs and Blu-rays, CDs, vinyl. I love it. It makes me happy to know that I own it. We've always got to remember video games, especially video games. You're essentially leasing anything that you purchase digitally from a company who can withdraw the rights to it at any time. They can't come to your house and knock on the door and make you give back a VHS or a Blu-ray. And and this really made me think of this because I actually loved that movie Moonshot. It was uh, It's Cole Sprouse... And Lana Condor. And it was just so charming and weird and this really sweet utopian vision of the future. And I was really thinking, like, this was a movie that I would buy on DVD. Like, mm -hmm. I would watch this again. This is like a cute comfort movie. But all of those movies were HBO Max originals. And this is where it becomes very interesting. It seems as if, coming from reports, Zaslav doesn't see the need to be making as many movies to put on HBO Max. He's very interested in putting out movies theatrically, so the notion of HBO Max original movies and how much they cost, like Batgirl, seems contradictory to the way that he wants to spend we money in the company. That, we should add that Zaslav seems very interested in rebuilding the HBO brand as a uh, and the Warner Brothers brand as a studio, and that yes. in the past, when... 
uh, when in a bid to build up the subscriber base, Warner Brothers had decided to release movies concurrently mm-hmm. on the streamer, a lot of stars complained about it yeah. because it just weakened their brand, made it seem like and less, decim- less authentically high quality. That said, th- 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 reports say that they did get them back on side with some pretty generous bonus payments, yeah. but stars did complain about it. It was a bad, yeah, yeah, because a lot of Hollywood movies, especially if you're a star who's doing a movie that could become a big franchise, but they're not sure, a lot of your money and deal comes from the back end, the money it makes at the box office. So by putting it to streaming, you take some of that away. Allegedly, Warner Brothers paid a lot of people a lot of money to make them talent-friendly again. Warner Brothers has long been known as one of the most talent-friendly studios, and that was a really controversial decision for them. And it's ironic because my understanding generally from this reporting and other reporting is Zaslav had kind of made an effort to try and bring those stars back to have those conversations and make people feel secure. But these choices at this time do not seem to add any kind of security to the idea of working with Warner Brothers, in my opinion. I mean, there was a the one of the biggest questions people have been asking about. So Batgirl was part of an inclusive slate of DC movies, the idea was they were going to be smaller movies that would debut on HBO Max. There was Batgirl and there was Blue Beetle. And the director of Blue Beetle has been going around liking tweets that say, save Blue Beetle. So even he doesn't necessarily know the status of the movie. So it seems like there's a a communication issue. We should add, too, that I think particular to the DCEU, this is particularly painful for fans of color because yes, uh, Batgirl, uh, a Latin actress, yeah. um, and then Blue Beetle, one of the most famous Latin superheroes in comics. Mm-hmm. So this is a tough pill to swallow. And this is the thing. Blue Beetle had reportedly, I'd missed this, but I guess Blue Beetle had reportedly already been switched to a theatrical release. So fingers crossed that will be safe and will still happen, uh, especially because I love I love the kid that they cast. I, I love the kid from Cobra Kai. Mm. Uh, he's absolutely wonderful. And I'm kind of... The whole thing is really tough because... It is tough. They do... These things do happen, but it is hard not to recognize who they happen to. It's yes. hard not to see the news of Batgirl and then this afternoon... Warner Brothers decided to announce when Joker 2 would come out and how that was still coming out, right? And that was relatively low-budget movie the first time. I'm sure the budget will be higher. And it was very successful, nominated for 11 Oscars. Nobody expects you to get rid of that. And especially as my understanding from reports is Zaslav has called, said he's found like a kindred spirit in Todd Phillips. So that was probably always going to happen. But it's very understandable for people who wanted to see a more inclusive vision. And and Batgirl... um, being Latina and also being a woman of color is actually has precedent um, in the Lego movie. And this was a casting that people were actually really into. Leslie Grace was a a breakout performance. And, you know, I think it's really tough because there are lots of different, like Jason said, there's lots of different reports. There's Reddit threads that are just full of people who had incredible screening experiences. Yeah, and they said they loved it. You know, and take those with a grain of salt. But but the the range... Of is, review of you of audience score is definitely not trending towards bad. It, not towards all bad or overwhelmingly yeah. bad. Hollywood Reporter actually said that it scored comparably to it, 
and an early cut of Shazam, the Shazam sequel. So it's very interesting because I think that it is more to do with this notion of a write down, which is a very normal Hollywood business, but it's quite unusual for it to happen in this way where you would shelve a movie or two movies in this case, because uh, Paul Dini, the famous comic creator and Batman the Animated Series co-creator, he was writing Scoob uh, Holiday Haunt, which by the way, sounds yeah. like amazing. I actually really <laughs> liked the first Scoob movie. I, I thought it was very cute. I love Scooby-Doo. And you know, he was saying, why would you shelve a film that's 95% done that would yeah. have a viewing window from Halloween all the way to Christmas? So there's there's something there that business-wise is confusing. But this investor call that we will have that's going to happen the day after we record this on Thursday, that will likely answer yeah. some of our questions. We've heard our sources have t- have uh, sort of laid out a reasoning, which is that there is a limited window to write down these movies um, and that doing so allows them to basically say like a, you know, like a act of God that, that they can't monetize these movies and therefore all of the budget can be taken off the books. Mm-hmm. Again, that's just things that we've heard. Uh, it, it would not explain to your point about the th- stuff that is getting made, for instance, why the uh, the the Flash and a very Ezra expensive Miller, movie, two hundred and thirty, two hundred fifty million dollar movie, starring Ezra Miller, who still a fugitive at the time of this recording, for uh, what are very troubling allegations, uh, is apparently still going to come out June twenty third, twenty twenty three. There's there's just a lot of questions. I think a lot of people, the Flash is coming very much to the forefront. You know, right. something I kind of. The more hopeful side that I saw, which I thought was a very interesting point, was the idea that maybe the reason Batgirl, before all of this reporting happened, so 24 hours ago, it's been a wild couple of days. <laughs> it's yeah. been a wild 24 It's but been really crazy. At first, people were like, well, maybe they are going to be folding her in to the Flash. And that's why they're going to use that footage to make the movie less about Ezra. Because the rumors about the movie was that the, fla- the Flash Flashpoint movie would introduce a new Justice League. We know that they have, um, they've already cast a super a, a Supergirl, and the idea was it was going to be this younger, cooler, led by Supergirl and Batgirl. That is one of the versions of you know um, the super team that everybody loves. Very big canon in the comics, so that was very much the expected way that this was going to go. I don't necessarily understand how you do that when you scrap the Batgirl movie. Yeah. And I'm assuming that you will rely heavily on contracts if you need people to appear. But yeah, it is it's the I think the Flash thing is is the reason that people are feeling feeling hurt by this. Hurt by it's this because it seems yeah, yeah. it's it seems pointed and it seems to be moving away from an era that people were really excited about with DC which was more diverse heroes, more inclusive versions of heroes, different versions of heroes because it's the multiverse, you know, that's what Flashpoint is. So, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting week as we kind of see what the fallout of this is and and how it will affect the vision of the DC movies going forward. You mentioned that earning call, which is going to hit August 4th, Thursday, August 4th. We are currently recording this on Wednesday. 
that will tell us a lot. And, you know, according to that rap article, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, according to the rap again, plans to lay off 70 percent of its development business. Um, So along with the fact that uh, many of us uh, and many Batgirl fans are frustrated and annoyed that this movie is not going to come out, a movie that seems super cool, not to mention the representative aspects of it. But it is also really possible that a lot of people are just going to lose their jobs like in, yeah, this, and that, in this restructuring. I think that's really the bummer. Like Warner, and Warner Brothers specifically actually has a, a history of taking in and buying and other companies and, and this happening under that banner. And then obviously AT&T, that merger where it was happening to Warner Brothers. And now it's happening to Warner Brothers again through this Discovery merger. It's very interesting. I think one of the things that I didn't really see coming, and I hope David Zaslav is not listening to this because I'm not trying to give you any ideas. But I think something that a lot of us were worried about as comic book readers, as people who go into the comic shop, who buy comics, when a merger like this happens, the assumption and fear immediately becomes how much does this person value the comic book business? How much do they understand that the business of comics is a big part of creating the films and the TV shows and your IP, right? And I definitely would have thought that we would have been seeing massive, devastating DC layoffs and restructuring, like DC comics, before we saw it happen at HBO Max or with DC movies. So I'm really happy and I'm hoping everyone at DC Comics keeps their job because I think this editorial team is amazing. Marie Javins is just killing it. Like, But I, I'm surprised to see it hit the movie side first because we always worry about what's going to happen to the comics. But I didn't really see this coming. We should add to that like streaming and gen- it's been an incredible run like eight, 10 year run of mm-hmm. just like spending as various Constant streaming growth. platforms have look to stock the shelves in order to draw consumers in and that surely that era is over netflix of course famously took a took a major hit uh, in recent months with their stock dropping and and for the first time ever subscribers leaving the platform uh cnn plus uh was launched and then died like later that same afternoon after it was launched david zaslav uh, again yeah not to mention the fact that you know with uh Russian sanctions, the war in Ukraine, uh, uh, China increasingly like at odds with with um, with the West. There's a, a fragmentation in the content kind of pool of money happening now. Uh, and so it seems like everybody is just getting getting ready uh, for a write down mm-hmm. and we're in it now. Uh, yeah. So hopefully, again, the uh, people who lose their jobs, manage to manage to get by. It's going to really suck. Nobody wants to see that. And we will see what happens next, Rosie. Yeah, we? next week is going to be an interesting follow-up. It's going to be a sure. really, really interesting week. Up next, the airlock. We're stepping out of the airlock into the dirty, grimy, crime-ridden, blood-streaked streets filled with pregnant rats and haunted crosswalks 
I'm talking about Gotham City, folks, to talk about season three of Harley Quinn out now on HBO Max. Uh, and then we're going to get into the 1980s and the 19 presents, the two to 20 <laughs> presents to talk about Amazon's adaptation of Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang's Paper Girls. First up, Harley Quinn. Uh, we're going to and we're going to talk in a more like deep divey fashion about both of these things uh, uh, later on. Um in the weeks to come, but we just wanted to touch on them now since they're getting started. Let's start with with Harley Quinn, course created by uh, Paul Dini and Bruce Tim for Batman the Animated Series, one of the most notable four animation crossovers to the comics, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly, I think you could say the most successful, right? The, like Absolutely. the most successful I mean, version of that. No question. There was a time when. DC began to call Harley the fourth pillar. Superman, yeah. Wonder Woman, Batman, Harlequin. Because that comic was selling that many numbers, especially around the the Amanda, Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti era where she was kind of reimagined as this more like, had more agency, kind of comedic badass. A lot yeah. more actually similar to the animated series, kind of taking her back to those roots. And to see the show now, which kind of explodes that and just, brings her back to animation, but has probably made her audience even wider is so cool. So uh, season three, just to kind of level set, where are we? Um, uh, Harley is broken up with the Joker. She is now in a, a the early stages of a relationship with Poison Ivy. They're both figuring out what that means for each other. Um, why uh Jim Gordon is running for mayor of Gotham. That's going, you know, about as well as you would expect for that version <laughs> of Jim Gordon. Uh, and uh, in the most recent episode, this is coming out Friday, so there'll be episode four will be out by the time you get this, but we're up to episode three well, as, at the time of this recording. At the time of this recording, uh, the villains of Gotham City have had gotten together and had their annual villain awards, which was just delightfully good fun uh, the yeah. return of the joker um this show just one of my favorite things on tv right now and mm-hmm. i really think that it might have not just like the most jokes per minute of any show right now but i think it might have the most jokes per minute like in the top five of jokes per minute oh. of shows all time it's just Absolutely. like joke 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 you can't yeah. stop with the jokes And this, I love to see a show like this. It kind of reminds me a little bit of The Boys in this sense, which is a show that has always been a meta text on comics and comic book movies and superheroes. But this season, they just don't give a fuck. Like they are satirizing everything. I mean, the Villies, the the award show that we saw, it was all just about the, the scandals in award ceremonies that have happened recently in real life history and the the bribes and all that kind of stuff. And and then, you know, they the the level of jokes that can be a throwaway quip that's just hilarious to a really in-depth bit. There's a joke in the first yeah. episode that's probably my favorite joke of the whole every season and I've watched all the seasons I covered the first two really extensively I got to speak to Justin Halpin and Patrick Schumacher at San Diego Comic Con about this season delightful gentlemen just really great guys and um, there's a joke in the first episode that sums up what this show does so well to me which is it's essentially a Rube Goldberg joke of somebody doing a small action 
that ends up killing someone. And that's all I'll say because that you don't need to know that part. But within that moment, they do an entire one-minute origin story of doing Batman's origin but for a mouse. And they do the whole thing and the mouse is fancy and Martha's wearing the pearls and it is so funny so and funny. so good. And when I, sp- I spoke to them for Den of Geek at San Diego and they did confirm to me that that does mean that there is a mouse version of Batman who I believe they call Rat Bat or Bat Rat. And, and so that he, he will appear. That is canon. And that kind of level of love for the stuff that they're, the source material that they're taking from, but also an irreverence where they're not afraid to be silly or have yeah. fun with it. That sums up to me what Harley does so well, but it also innately understands the characters. Like the yes, first two seasons. That's absolutely true. That's was, it. Was so deeply about the reality of Harley's relationship with Joker and the abusive relationship, which is something that comic book fans have talked about for a long time. And it really took time to work through that. And the best thing is like this season begins in this honeymoon phase and there's a really fun bit where they're in the Fortress of Solitude and they've broken in there and they're like on their honeymoon. But the actual season is not just like, hey, they're together now. This is so easy. And even though the the creators did say, and I love this and they say it in every interview, under their watch, they're never going to break up. This is the end game relationship, but it's not actually easy. And while you're getting all these outrageous, gross out jokes, James Gunn's in a vibrating clay face chair playing himself, Bob, Billy Bob Thorne is playing Thomas Wayne. Like you're also getting this really deep exploration of can Harley even be in a good relationship? Yeah. Like she doesn't know how to do it. She overpromises. She doesn't know how to not be an appendage. And I, it, the balance is so good because it's also just this really crude gross adult animation show but it has these layers to it that make it feel really special there's a thing that it does to to build off your point the way that it acknowledges the lore and history of gotham and these characters so uh there was like a, a viral kind of tweet response thread going around you know a month or so ago that was basically like you know, rent in Gotham is $300 a month. What, what, what do you yeah, see yeah. if you pay yeah, that kind of thing? And that that's what this show is like. It it mm-hmm. it attacks uh, the reality of living in a city in which legitimately, like, crime is everywhere. You could be decapitated by a, a super criminal. criminal. Everyone is a famous criminal. The crosswalks are legitimately haunted. There's toxic acid sludge in the sewers just running through and how do you how do you live here and and it does all of these callbacks to the history and reality of these characters and places in really fun ways in in episode two as harley and ivy are like trying to figure out what their relationship is like do they like each other how do they spend time you know they're obviously attracted to each other and there's feeling there but what does that mean when you have to spend time with a person, like what's a relationship like? So Ivy is talking about like they go to Ivy's like uh, Eden jungle in Gotham. That's only like an acre. It's one of the many times she has tried to create like a paradise on Earth and she tried to do it and she's complaining about it. She's like, yeah, I, I wanted to transform everything, but I only it only was an acre and I should have done this and I should have put more plants here. And like and Harley's like, no, this is awesome. What are you talking about? This is so cool. You did this, this is one of the coolest jungles I've ever seen. But then, of course, like they're hanging out there for a while and, and Ivy gets really into it. She's like, 
looking at her plants. She's pointing at all the different like flowers around. And then Harley gets just insanely bored after like one minute without her phone. And and you're like, wait, wait a second. Like, will this relationship work? It's that. It's mm-hmm. using the history of these characters and the things that they've done on their own in the comics, the different schemes that they've had as kind of fodder and stories for like the way a, 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 a pair, a couple would actually bond, would actually like tell each yeah. other about certain things about themselves uh, and then twisting it so that because you realize, yeah, like Harley would be just fucking bored hanging out of the jungle mm-hmm. all the time. She wants to like legitimately like smash someone's skull in and steal like a diamond encrusted dinosaur bone. Like yeah, that's exactly. what she was. That's what she would love to do while Ivy is out here being like, look at this incredible, like rare man eating plant that I made. Uh, and, and stuff like that just makes this show so much fun on top of like the joke after joke after joke. Yeah. And if you love, like we always love to talk about deep cut comic book stuff. I mean, this is the kind of show where, you're going to see characters that you'll probably never see adapted ever again. Yeah. Like literally ever again. You are going to get to see some of the weirdest, most deep cut characters. And this season, it does that really well at the Villies. But they also, yeah, the um, <laughs> one of my favorite things is in in episode two when, so it starts off and it looks like a classic like DC animated movie. And it's Nightwing, who's played by the amazing Harvey Guillen, who I just love so much from what we do in the shadows. And he's so good at doing the voice. And um, and he's doing like, a, he's like, my city needs me. It needs a hero. And Harley's like, uh, anyone want to switch seats? And it's just like, they <laughs> oh understand the nature of they, uh, yes, the severity but- of the Bat family and the seriousness. And there's this great bit where they go in, he goes back home and he's like, father, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm your equal now. You don't, yeah. you know, there's no more Robin. It's just Nightwing. And then like, Batgirl turns up and then Damian Wayne turns up and everyone and he's just like oh fuck like and yeah. it's it's so funny and they understand the the relationships and the characters so well that it becomes just that much more enjoyable yeah every joke is built on something essential about these characters like later on Nightwing after he has failed in a thing is just like absolutely beating himself up like you're <laughs> stupid you're so dumb he's like punching himself and then like you're so dumb you're an idiot why did you think you could do this you're such a dummy <laughs> it's like it is so great i mean this jim gordon is oh, like yeah. a is like a coffee addict constantly disheveled like borderline fascist cop who is basically using Uh, much like the real world, like a war on crime Mm -hmm. as a way to bolster his chances of winning mayor. Meanwhile, everybody is pointing out to him, hey, dude, like criminals run this fucking city. Uh, (laughs) Everyone's escaping from jail slash fucking Arkham all the time. Uh, What are you talking like? This war on crime is not a success, dude. Uh, And all that kind of stuff is just, it's wonderful. It's really well woven in the kind of political conversations that make us all tick, that we always want to have about Gotham and how it works and how it's analogous to the real world, but also with like hilarious jokes. How much would you, what what do you think rent in Gotham is? What would you, oh no, I think, let's say a one bedroom, a one bedroom apartment. Um, 
by the by the water. So by the I, docks. By the docks, I think that it's probably actually secretly expensive, like a thousand dollars, because it's slightly gentrified, because it's like close to Wayne Manor or some shit. Like that's the reality. There will be areas of Gotham where it's fifty dollars and Literally, you can't get home insurance. You can't get an apartment insurance because oh, you can't get Batman insurance. is constantly throwing <laughs> missiles through your window. Car your insurance, car, car in insurance, Gaza is no. forget about it. It's your car being thrown by Bane <laughs> yeah. every week. Is and no matter what you do, you're calling up the insurance adjuster and they're like, "Tell us your what's your um, zip code." And you Are say you the Gotham the zip water? code, and they put it down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not not happening. Call up Jim Gordon. He's like. You want to file an incident report? Like, yeah, join the queue. Like, you're never getting an insurance. You're never nothing. And and there's, I think that there's going to be areas of Gotham that are gentrified because that's the nature of those kind of places, especially when there's a billionaire family. But I think you're going to have those $50, $100 rents that are a myth in the real world anymore let's say because you that live place close is to, terrible. Let's say you live, like, on the way to Arkham. Studio apartment in the vicinity of Arkham <laughs> and like the Riddler definitely had a headquarters in the building at one okay. time. So it's $150 the first month and free afterwards because your landlord gets killed by the Riddler. <laughs> 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 so then it's just like the checks start coming back and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I guess I live here for free now. And I, I love that aspect of it because again, it's that thing that we love so much, which is having being in conversation with the fans. Yeah. Like some of my favorite, I've seen so many hilarious TikTok videos, especially in the MCU, of like pretending that you like work for car insurance in in like the MCU's New York. And it's just like, you would hate the Avengers if they were real. You would hate them. Uh, absolutely. You would absolutely like, my hate them. Your car is wrecked. You just your house like, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Hulk, the Hulk smashed your kid. Like, yeah, what the fuck? I mean, we should add that there's an on the, the, the ongoing James Gunn cameo. Is yes. Okay. <laughs> so, Please, yeah, so this talk is about, talk about James yeah. Gunn. Okay. So this so is so good. Multiple episodes. So James Gunn show. is playing himself. Yeah. And this is so good. I spoke to the I spoke to the guys about this um, at San Diego as well. And so basically, James Gunn's playing himself, and he's decided that he is going to leave the like popcorn madness behind. He wants to win an award, and to do that, he's going to make like a scorsese style aviator <laughs> biopic of thomas wayne and his rise and his ultimate demise another AKA, thomas wayne movie says you know when he hears about it <laughs> yeah 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 and batman <laughs> is like very devastated and billy bob thornton plays to- himself playing thomas wayne and clayface wants to be a part because he loves he really wants to be an actor and he gets an unexpected role in the movie uh d- d- alongside james gunn and James Gunn's playing himself, and it's very funny, and it does a really good job of expanding. It makes the meta text even more textual because you're bringing in a real world director into your fictional world to make a movie that probably will get made at some point. And it kind of continues the there's an ongoing joke in the DC animated universe, especially in Teen Titans Go specifically, which is like the notion that everyone gets a movie before Robin. And yeah. it's like they even, you know, the car gets a movie and they're about to make an animated TV kids series called Bat Wheels. You know, the Bat Belt gets a movie. Alfred gets a movie. Alfred got a TV show. And you end up in this situation. So Thomas Wayne getting this movie that everyone knows what's going to happen, which is he's going to die. 
and his kids <laughs> going to be crying. And and yeah, it's it's very funny, and I'm very excited to see how in they go because the the creative team was telling me that that was always they always wanted it to accumulate in this Thomas Wayne biopic. That's kind of a big part of where the series is going. So. I'll be very excited, especially it seems very interested, like the latest season of Barry was as well in not just decimating and satirizing the superhero genre, but how Hollywood interacts with it. So I'll be very interested to kind of see that aspect of the satire going forward. Well, if you want something funny and fast and you're a comic book fan, uh, don't miss Harley Quinn. It's great. The third season just started. You've got two seasons to run into it. It's there's a, uh, it's really heartfelt, and it's actually like actually great to watch Harley just like jettison the Joker from her life after everything that's happened. It's great. Oh yeah, uh, and Lake Lake Bell is so good as Poison Ivy. She's great. She brings a real like s- gr- weird gravitas to the role, <laughs> like sad sarcastic gravitas like you just want to i want to see that she translated wants, to a real screen here's what's crazy about it about lake bell's performance and about poison ivy in this show you're like wait a second i get it poison ivy uh, you know she, okay she's like has put in eden serum in stuff and and she's gonna you know have plants repopulate the world but also like we kind of need someone to do that. Yeah. Like, can Poison we get? Ivy has always been right. She's one yeah, of the she, most. She's right. legitimately right. Like, she's she right about to, what needs to happen. She wants to take out billionaires and grow some plants. I'm like, yeah, that sounds I good. I love it. <laughs> sounds great. Uh, yeah, go. Please watch uh, Harley Quinn on HBO Max. Up next, Paper Girls. This is the adaptation of the Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang property, which first started publishing in 2015, uh, following the exploits of four young newspaper delivery girls who, after Halloween 1988, go through a a time warp and end up in the middle of a... uh, interdimensional time war in which they meet future versions of themselves. Uh, we are on episode three right now, uh, and I think, which I think is actually the strongest uh, episode of the season. I think it starts a little meditative and a little slower, but I'm willing to stick with it. And I've, I've, it, first of all, it looks great. Like it looks amazing. Yeah. It looks, this is exactly how you would have wanted I know this, this is comic book to be adapted. This is the first time that I've really seen the vision. I remember when Thor Ragnarok came out, right? And Taika Waititi talked a lot about bringing Jack Kirby's visual aesthetic to the movie. And it did that so much more than any yeah. Marvel movie up until that point, especially with the patterns. But this movie is the closest I've seen, especially in the color palette. Matt Wilson does the colors, Eisner winning, Matt Wilson colorist. Um, of Paper Girls and they literally like lifted those pages and they invented narrative reasons for there to be pink lighting and yellow lighting and blue lighting and different ways that light and color are used throughout the show and yeah I will say it's very it's very slow burn I think that something that we talked about before on a previous episode was how does a show like this that's based on a comic that predates Stranger Things but has a lot in common with Stranger Things, which is now very well known. How does it craft a show that has a predominant air of nostalgia just from having a section of the story being based in the 80s, 
but they actually really there's not really any similarities to Stranger it's Things not, in not this. Any. They reject that Brian K. Vaughan actually did a said a quote about rejecting nostalgia, and I think the idea of this show is. The re- to show the reality of what it was like to live in the 80s, not the kind of trappings of the 80s, and then putting them into the modern day, which for me is some of the funnest stuff, is get the kids are so amazing who play the four girls as well. That's that's one of the biggest selling points of the show. But like getting to see them interact with like new technology is really fun. Like you really believe that they've never like, seen a like a yeah, video like, a game. Second. You can you can like get all the information in the whole world like on this computer. Are you serious? Your phone is a camera that's also a video camera that you could make a movie on. You're just like, what the fuck? Now, there's certain there are certain tonal things that are just yeah, at the bear has been a hot topic for people who love TV and been watching TV of late. And I loved the bear. I thought it was Oh, it was so done. good. It made me so happy. I don't work in restaurants anymore. I know. <laughs> but the thing, this is just a thing about me. One of the, a thing that is hard for me to get into is people arguing all the fucking time. Like I like a roast. That first like episode must have been really hard like, for you. <laughs> like I like a ro- like a cut down, like succession level, like fuck you, and then you walk off or you call somebody a really crazy, um, uh, you know. Uh, some kind of like really, really crazy insult. But when people are like around each other, constantly screaming at each other and arguing, my react, and this is just because like I am a person who like shies from vicious arguments. My internal instinct is like, just fucking leave. Just go away. <laughs> like when I'm watching the bear, I'm like, fire your fucking cousin. Like who cares? Oh my God. Like, Don't like even enough, get me on enough with this fucking guy. I get it. You love your family. You want to do well by them. Yada, yada, yada. But at a certain point, it's just like, get the fuck out if you don't like it. Like at a certain point, don't you have to do that? And so there's some art, like when, <laughs> when uh, Aaron meets future Aaron, in episode two, and they spend a lot of time there. And they're just, like, going back and forth. Our young Aaron is like, you're such a loser. Look at how your life has failed. This is what you do. I thought you'd have a better thing. And then future Aaron is like, okay, well, you think I'm such a quitter and I'm such a loser. The reason I'm a quitter is because you quit. You are one day at your fucking newspaper job. So how about that? And it's like, let me tell you something. If 12-year-old me shows up at my house and starts ripping on me, I'm throwing that motherfucker out of the house. Like, <laughs> me I don't too. care. I'm like, get, you don't like it? You don't like me trying to save your ass in the future? You have, you have no idea what's going on here? You've come to me with this weird fucking device? You don't even know what it does? Get out. You don't like it? Get the fuck out. You're not having a sleepover in my house with your child friends. I know. But, uh, but episode three, Mackenzie, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, I love the fact that the character design for I don't know if I picked I guess I didn't pick this up specifically in the comics, right? But played by Sofia Rosinski, it wonderful really, really great performance. Yeah. But like the haircut, the the outfit is Edward Furlong from Terminator 2. Oh, I know. Like, Dude, I kept it, thinking it every it, time I like, watched the show. I'm like, they could have <laughs> if 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 you know what it is. It's, they don't have the public enemy shirt. If it had yeah, the public enemy shirt, like you would have known. You would have been like, that and, is it. And it's like blowing my mind. The Every, hair is so see, perfect. The hair Ed is perfect. The flannel is perfect. And in episode three, there is a really great like stretch where McMack meets her brother from the future. 
uh, after seeking out that, you know, they're, they're seeking out their future selves, their future parents, their future, just to figure out like what's going on after kind of breaking with future Aaron and Mac has been looking for her house. She finds that it's destroyed and then uh, Googles her brother and realizes that uh, weirdly he's become a doctor, which is shocking to her, an ER doctor. And she goes to see him. And it is so well done and really hits. She finds out, spoiler, that you know she's 12, 13. She finds out that at age 16, she dies of lymphoma. And that is the thing that inspired her brother to become a doctor. Um, and it's these two characters who, you know, in, in Max's memory, uh, didn't get along at all. Like, really, Mac doesn't seem to get along with anybody. That's another whole nother story. But like, really, we're, we're at odds. But they found through this tragedy of losing his sister, Mac's brother finds his calling and they're able to weirdly bond over this familial love that they have for each other that they have clearly never expressed. And it's really cool. It's really yeah, cool. I think that if I was going to say the biggest difference from Stranger Things, aside from like, one, they do something very clever in this in the show to differentiate it from that, which was, you know, kids on bikes, 80s, nostalgia, things that you connect to the 80s. Basically, in the comics, the 80s is a bigger part of the comics. But here, yes. you're just in the future, right? But something that I think is very different from Stranger Things is this is an incredibly philosophical show. Like, it's all about this idea of, like, what do you do with your life? How would your child you look at you? How would your family see you? What would you do if you could see yourself as a kid? How would you change things? It's very existential in that way. And I think that might be another aspect of of the slow burn feeling because it's incredibly focused on character yes. and character journeys and what those character journeys mean going forward and in this world where well not only do, are you in the future but time travel exists there's an intergalactic civil war going on and you have somehow broken some kind of time law just by not dying in the past Really excited to check in with this show over the coming weeks. Up next, Hive Mind. Welcome to the Hive Mind, where we explore topic in more detail with the help of expert guests. And this week, it was tough to get them, but we got them. We are thrilled to have the one and only Rosie Knight and her collaborator, artist Oliver Ono, to discuss their work on the one-shot Godzilla comic, Godzilla versus Batra. Uh, Oliver, Rosie, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks Hi, so much it's for nice to me. be here. <laughs> yeah. how, did this, how did this project come, up, come about? Um, so I, I was asked to pitch on Godzilla by our wonderful editor, Jazz Joyner at IDW. And I came up with a pitch and the pitch was approved. And then Jazz said, oh, are there any artists that you would like to work with? And I put together a list and Oliver was number one. And Jazz loved Oliver's work as well. And I followed Oliver on Instagram. That was how I knew his amazing work. And then Jazz said yes. And then we made the comic. It was, it was, it was surprisingly streamlined. 
But we, we reached out to all, I re, Jazz emailed Oliver and said, hey, do you want to draw a Godzilla comic? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a crazy, crazy time on my end. Yeah, for sure. Completely just kind of cold called. Uh, so happy to be a part of it, though. Um, Rosie, what is your what is your relationship to Godzilla? I'm a Godzilla lover. I've always loved Godzilla. I didn't get to watch a lot of the movies, the later movies especially, until I was more of an adult. But as a kid, the older ones, you get to watch them in England, and they would have some in the video store. I love monsters. I really like weird old B-movie stuff. So especially the the 60s Godzilla with baby Godzilla, those were things that I just never could imagine that I would have been a part of telling this story. And even though I kind of like the wacky stuff, the origins of Godzilla are, are so serious and 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 huge that that was why with this story, I really wanted to make sure that I was doing that justice and in a space where we could tell a story that had that ecological bent, that had that emotional bent. And Oliver was definitely absolutely the right person to to tell it with me. Yeah, Oliver, I would describe your style as like dystopian tech, but like lived in cool, like cool <laughs> hazmat suits for a destroyed ecological future. Yes. Um, that pretty much hits it. Tell us, yeah, tell us about your, your collaboration. How does it, how did it, how was it and how did it work? Oh, it was Collaborating so with Rosie on this. Yeah, no, um, you know, when it came down to uh, like how it was kind of pitched to me, it was, you know, I, I like, I like Godzilla a lot. Um, obviously I'm, I'm half Japanese as well. So like, there's all kinds of like, uh, that that kind of like history if my father was was there to see it like it would have been so cool to you know because that, that's the that's the kind of stuff that he would have watched like growing up you know um you know in the original format but um on my end yeah it, it was um it was really just kind of like such a treat to um uh, kind of come to it from that angle and rosie luckily uh, facilitated kind of, um, adding in some of these like robots and kind of that flavor that I had, uh, been putting out there for a while. Um, and how she kind of found me on Instagram. Um, yeah. so it was so cool to kind of have, uh, this like iconic set of characters, but also still kind of, uh, fit into what I would consider like my normal wheelhouse. So it was a very natural flow. Something that's really cool about this this line is like they are original even though we're using monsters that are from these iconic movies and these franchises the stories need to be standalone so it was very easy I, I love Oliver's art and anytime that I do a comic with anyone I always want to make sure the artist is drawing stuff they want to draw so as soon as Oliver said yes I was like okay well now it's a world like you said Jason where it's this ecologically damaged world which there was always an element of that but i was like and there's loads of mech but i don't want to have the mech fight godzilla so instead they're just like a mech that helps someone in a bookshop yeah. or like a mech that does fishing so yeah i thought that was that was just that was natural to me and it made the book so much cooler and the world of the book feel a lot more i understood to it a lot more as soon as i knew oliver would be drawing it for the give us a like 
synopsis of the story? What's the elevator pitch on Godzilla Rivals, Godzilla versus Batra? I'd say it's like Godzilla meets Studio Ghibli. That was kind of the aesthetic world. <laughs> I mean, you hit that. Yeah. You absolutely hit there's, that. Like, that know, is a, absolutely the texture of this. I even made sure that there was, um, you know, there's a there's an entire... <laughs> There's an entire page that I never thought we would get to make. And that IDW just loved it. And Jazz was so cool about it and totally got the vision. But um, the there's an entire page that's just cooking. Because I wanted to bring that Ghibli vibe to it. But yeah, if you want to know that this is the official, what we call a solicit, which is how they order it, which is very similar to my original pitch. So quiet beachside town ravaged by constant sewage spillages and toxic waste dumps. Something is stirring deep under the rolling hills that surround Hackney on sea. There's no sea in Hackney, but that's where I come from. So let's I had to say, give the cares? shout out. Let's just go. Yeah, let's just go for it. <laughs> right. Bat- Batra is awakening, driven out by a single goal to destroy mankind and save planet Earth. The only thing that can stop the monster is Godzilla, but he hasn't been seen in decades and has never ventured into the cold shores of the English coast until now. Robbie runs a small bookshop, but her real passion is monsters. She spent years researching the myth of Godzilla and his fearsome foes. Now that hypothetical experience has become a life-saving tool. Can Robbie locate Godzilla? Will Godzilla be enough to defeat Batra? Is Batra wrong? And will the goddess Mothra make an appearance? You will have to read it to find out. So that's like the that's like the the audiobook uh, description. And it was just I was really inspired by where I live in in LA on the coast. Like even though me and Oliver, it just so turned out this was one of those really great universe kind of things. Oliver actually knew the British coastline really well. <laughs> so it ended up being actually quite easy for us to to envision the world. But I'd actually been inspired originally when I was thinking about ecological aspects of this story. Um, in LA, pretty much every beach, especially in any working town or working class area, is just constantly having sewage dumped on it and yeah. sewage spills. And I was like, it'd be really cool if Godzilla came and just was like, not cool about that. And was like, hey, just stop that. So that was kind of the the real world inspiration that then made it into our version of of this story. I love talking to people who do creative stuff for a living because, first of all, it's such a great way. It's it's kind of like the ideal for a lot of people, I think, when you're a kid and you read comics or you watch movies or you, whatever. You're like, wow, how do I do stuff that's fun for a living? Oliver, what is it? How, how do you what was it? What was the moment where you were like, I'm drawing. I'm a kid. I want to keep drawing <laughs> and I want to I, I just want to keep doing it and not stop. And then what's it like? Like, how do you? How do you how do you grind out a living as a as a working illustrator? Oh, for sure. Um, you know what's funny is that like I still have some drawings from when I was like three or four, and like strangely <laughs> enough, they are that was like keep in mind, uh, like I'm like born in '93, so that was like prime like like age for Pokemon when that came out. So there's like <laughs> all kinds of like Pokemon, but then that eventually evolved into like literally me drawing like just ginormous monsters as like a four-year-old. So I have drawings of the same subject matter, essentially uh, going back. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's really hard to say a, a lot of the time it was, um, you know, obviously like doing art is kind of like an aspirational thing, of course, but it, it was also kind of like um, 
like I would, I, I used to draw things that I just like wanted. Like if I saw like a toy uh, and I wasn't allowed yeah. to get it, I would draw it. So like from a really young age, it was just kind of hammered in that like, you, you can like do the things you want and have the things you want if you can just kind of like draw them. And then, and then that <laughs> kind of does it, right? Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know a specific time that I maybe made that decision. It, it was always just kind of like, what else am I going to do? Like, I, I honestly don't think that. <laughs> how did you, how did you go about building a career out of this? True. Um, well, that is, uh, still kind of in the works, uh, in like the sure. larger scale. That's it's always, always the way. For every yeah. Career. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I honestly, and I, I heard some really good, uh, advice, um, recently from, uh, Danny Warren Johnson, he mentioned something. I, I think this is maybe like the best advice, um, is like, even if you're not getting paid for what you're doing, like keep working at it, like you're getting paid. Um, for, for instance, the thing that I was working on for years and years and years, it, it was literally just like boiled down to like, what is the closest thing that I could possibly do to like what I would actually want to put out there. And then I just kept doing it as much as possible until, um, you know, eventually things slowly started to pick up. But I, I really personally didn't put out a lot of um, like feelers. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't pursuing things as much as kind of just like uh, if you build it, they will come kind of a, yeah. kind of a mentality. I mean, that's kind of, you know, it's. Uh, as a writer, mm -hmm. you spend a lot of time just writing stuff, hoping to get better, knowing that probably no one is ever going to read this. And this mm -hmm. is just so you can get better. And then you hope at a certain point in time when you get an opportunity to work somewhere, you get hired as a, as a reporter or a blogger or what have you, that now that you have that, you also have this huge archive of shit you've just been doing mm -hmm. that you can then call upon, pull pieces out of and repurpose and and have like this huge palette to work on. So and and a thing that you can point to to say, hey, look, this is also what I do. Nobody's mm -hmm. ever read this before. This is just stuff I have. And this is that, you know, that's at least the way I went about it. Rosie, yeah. how did um, how did you People know you from here. People know you from your work at Nerdist and other places, IGN. But how long have you been, like, writing fiction, creating your yeah, own stuff? I think it's, like, it's kind of like what you're both saying, which is you do it because you kind of have to, but not because yeah. you have to to get a job, but because you have to because it's just, like, inside you and you need to draw right. it or you need to write it. And I've been writing ever since I was a kid. I was writing so many weird horror stories and like spooky things. I had a phase where I was doing poetry and, and really it was only when I moved to America that I realized that there was a space to make a career as a writer, just by the notion of there being such a big, this is such a big place and there's so many different, you know, we, I was I moved here like six or seven years ago, so it was really in the boom of like a lot of digital entertainment blogging and stuff. And I started, this is what I say to people at comics, what I say to people at anything. You just have to make it first 
Like yeah, if you want you to, to people say, I moderated a really cool panel with DC, with a bunch of people from DC and Webtoon. And then afterwards, you know, this guy came up and he was like, how do I get into comics? Like, how do I do it? And I was like, you just got to make a comic, man. That's like the first yeah. thing. And it's the same with writing. I, yeah. I, I wrote some pieces for free for women write about comics. Now three-time Eisner winning women write about comics. One after third Eisner this year at the SDCC. And um, I wrote a couple of pieces there that were just me riffing on some funny stuff that I thought was funny about comics. Or I did some critiques on, you know, the dark comics of the 1987 and all this kind of stuff. And then I saw someone do a call out on Nerdist and I was like, oh, well, I have clips now that were published on a website. And that's yeah. how I ended up being able to become a pop culture writer and and have this as my job, which is just write, like to talk about this stuff and write about it. But throughout that, I've always also been writing my own stuff. I'm like you. I have You have the, the million pilots, the 50 comic book scripts, all of that stuff, because you never know when you're going to meet the person who's the best collaborator or the person who really wants to see it. And I think that that notion of just making it, whether you make it with your friends, whether you make it for yourself, that's the best place to start. Because then when someone comes to you and says, hey, do you make something? You can be like, hey, I've already done it, actually. Like, what do I do next to take it to the next level? The thing that I think uh, is a roadblock for a lot of people is a roadblock for me and still is sometimes is you're absolutely right, Rosie. You got to make the thing. Like when people ask me, oh, what do I, I want to write stuff. What do I do? Well, just write a piece and finish it. Mm -hmm. and finish whatever you're doing. Um, but it, that can be hard because oh, the, so I mean, hard. the thing that happens to me is I'll write the thing and I'm like, this sucks so bad. If anybody <laughs> ever sees this, I will fucking die. Yeah. How do you get past that first draft, first, uh, whether it's the uh, the illustration or the first draft or the written piece where you look at it and it sucks? Because first drafts always suck. Like it always mm -hmm. The first thing is always bad, and then you make it better. But how do you get past the stumbling block of just like, oh, my God, this sucks so fucking bad. I don't want anybody to ever see this. The the one thing I had to really teach myself about both articles and now as I'm trying to do more long-form fiction and, and, and pilots and stuff like that, I, one of the hardest things, one of the reasons that we do this to ourselves the most, I think, is um, we we self-edit as we're writing. So it takes mm. you like 10 times longer. You just got to write the one bad one first. Get write it. the That's one bad thing yeah. and finish. That's what I do. And then you can go back and you can be like, this will be a little bit tighter. This And and definitely as I've, especially when it comes to journalism and comic book scripts, as I've gotten further into it, I'm, I'm very now, when I'm writing that first draft, I don't, see those as much of a like I just need to finish it I don't allow myself to edit too much but I I make sure that I'm very like detail oriented like the only thing you can be happy is like are you happy that you put this out there when you put yeah. it out there will you be okay that it exists in a week or two weeks or a year you're probably going to hate it because that's just the nature of being a human but can you live with it in that moment and feel like it's the best version of of whatever you're doing you know that's kind of the, all you can do but yeah, just finishing it is the hardest thing. I still, my personal projects, finishing it is so hard. Like when I'm being, when it's work and I have a deadline, yeah. I can do it. But if it's like my passion project that I think is really good, some reason the finishing is is the hardest part. Oliver, what and about you? Well, you know, to add on to that, I, I do feel like um, one thing that really can help is even if you don't have like a deadline, like 
if you have if you do jump on with like collaborators or something like that uh mm-hmm. having some sort of uh community whether that's like your like discord yeah. or whatever that can also kind of like keep you um you know accountable for for like yeah you know whatever whatever the case may be whether they're actually like working with you on the thing or whether they're just like invested in it um you know that's not like a monetary thing but even at that point i think that just having people know that you're doing something uh helps to make you actually do it you know yeah there's a lot of writing challenges and stuff like um thousand words of summer and nano nani remo and stuff where that the reason that people have a lot of success and end up writing fifty thousand words in november or a thousand words every day throughout the summer months is because of that accountability because you you have a community and you get and you say i did do it today i didn't do it today i hope i'm going to do it today and i think that is such a great point because a lot of us never really even thought of that when you're an artist it can be like quite solitary Mm -hmm. But actually yes. finding that community and having people who are going to be like, oh, I'd love to read that. Or like, can you just check this over for me? That is a really yeah. great feeling. I, I I could not agree more, not to break into your the interview with Rosie and, and Oliver here. No, but I, you know, I, the stumbling block often to showing people things is, again, that fear of doing it. But I, the community aspect is really important, has been important to me because, you know, as a creator, you're often sitting around waiting for somebody to give you a job or waiting for an editor to give you an assignment or trying to convince uh, your producer to let you try this thing. And a great way around that is to just find people who are in that same boat with you on that same level trying to get their projects made and be like, hey, how can I help this person mm-hmm. make their project mm-hmm. while – also moving my project forward. Like I want to do more work. Okay. How can we, how can I collaborate with you as an artist? How can I collaborate with you as a writer? Maybe we can figure out how to do something together. Um, And that has been a thing that I found really helpful. One, because uh, everybody's has their own goals. And if you can help them with theirs, you'll often find that that will be repaid in some way. And two, it's just like you find people that become your friends, whether mm-hmm. or not you end up doing anything. Yep. Like people want to be around people that they like. And if you have a friend group that's also very talented, guess what's going to happen? One of those friends is going to end up doing something cool and they're going to want to do it with people who aren't strangers or who aren't extremely talented assholes. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, like you can be as often as it's been often uh, said to me about like writer's rooms. It's like, mm-hmm. I would rather work with somebody who's like an eight out of 10, but not a jerk than work with somebody who's a 10 out of 10 talent, but a complete pain to be around. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you. Like finding that community can be, can be so important. Um, I'm so glad that you guys put this together. Um, do any other future projects to pitch? Any other things to pitch? Bits of advice for people who are listening right now that are like, man, I want to create something. I want to do something. I want to draw something. I want to write something. Uh, what can you tell the people out there who would like to do something like this as well? I would say from the perspective of someone who for the first time was in a position to pick uh, a collaborator, I literally found Oliver because 
he just shared his art and I thought it was really cool. So I think like taking that step of sharing the work that you're doing and putting yourself out there. I mean, that's how I ended up on this podcast was just by mm-hmm. sharing my work yep. and, and by writing these about these things I cared about and being passionate about the things that I love. So I think that being brave enough to like put it out there. And also I've seen a great kindness in artistic communities and and a there real usually is. a real support of growth. So I think even if you're someone who's art, you feel like it's a bit rough or it's not the version. I I love to see my friends art get better or to see them feel like Mm -hmm. they're becoming more professional or whatever. So I just think putting it out there, I think Oliver's thing about community is, is so key. Also it, Mm it, it, that is a really good way of practicing collaboration for like the future. Like you said, Jason, like how do you want to interact if you get into a writer's room or if you make a comic and stuff to me, I always try and go into any interaction like that with kindness about whether it's making the podcast, whether it's making a comic, whether it's writing an article. But I only learned that from doing other stuff with other people, you know, and oh, this is how I want it to be. This is this is the way I want things to be. So I think being putting your art out there, especially in the age of the Internet, I found Oliver's art on Instagram, you know, yeah. it's not the best platform for artists anymore. People have a, a sadness about that. And the way it's gone. But, you know, that's how I found Oliver. And that wasn't that long ago. Oliver, tips for anybody who wants to get into creative life. They think they want to draw. They think they want to write. Um, wh- what tips do you have for them to, to follow? Uh, for sure. I would say biggest thing is, you know, a lot of the time, especially when you're looking at um, a lot of these kind of like uh, instructional uh, like people taking advice, uh, trying to, uh, people trying to give advice about, um, like how to do this exact thing. A lot of them kind of tried to, um, uh, you know, tell you to modify your stuff to be more consumable in the, you know, the most, um, honestly, sometimes like generic sort of way. And like right. the way that I work is like kind of, super not that like it, it's just not like yeah. what what uh most people you know think of when they think of like a, a normal like comic book style or wh- whatever the whatever the case may be um and and specifically doing that is what has gotten me the farthest in my mm-hmm. in my case so i think that you know trying to go with the most wide reaching audience for whatever you want to do creative creatively um can sometimes make it so that you end up working on like other people's projects mm-hmm. as opposed to being yeah. searched out for your project. I think that's a really good idea and hilariously very relevant to the podcast because for a long time, I'm sure this is the same for Jason, but people will be like, oh, well, nobody cares about comics. Who wants to talk about comics? You know, and you keep talking about comics and you keep writing about comics and you keep loving comics. And then that is the most bankable thing in the world and suddenly everyone's like oh actually that thing that was niche is now no longer niche you know and and you you were true to loving it the whole time or designing it or doing something unique true and that, that's exactly the same thing you know when I was like coming up in like you know like art school uh like back in like what 2012 2013 um like the big thing everybody was saying is oh well you know don't draw don't draw like manga don't draw anime and it's like <laughs> and now like the, <laughs> the domestic yeah. market for that is 
just like disgustingly large. And there are like entire avenues of, of, you know, people that are looking for specifically that style of stuff. And not that like my stuff is, um, I, 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 I take, I take, uh, direction from both ends of it, but yeah, I, I would just say that like when somebody tries to, you know, tell you not to do something a certain way, obviously you got to learn all of your stuff, get good, all of that. Listen to your teachers, whatever. At the end of the day, <laughs> you know, make what you want to make. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. And I think about the manga thing a lot because, um, pretty much every great comic book artist that I love, especially high-profile women in comics got told that in art school. Like, don't draw like manga. You'll never be successful. Don't base it on manga. And then, of course, these women are, like, killing it in the game. So I think that's a really good point. I like that notion. Just be true to what you're doing, and if it's weird and someone's like, that's too weird, then they're probably just not the right person to collaborate with or or to get what you're doing. But you'll probably find that person at some point. There's a lot of people out there. Uh, Anything coming up to plug, Oliver and Rosie? We are, we're doing a signing, or it will be tomorrow, uh, when you listen to this podcast, Saturday, Pulp Fiction, um, in Long Beach. There's two Pulp Fictions, but this is at the Long Beach one. We will be there. Mark Martinez, who drew the cover of our B cover, will be there, and a ton of other great local Long Beach artists. Brenda Chi will be there, doing commission cards, doing cool art stuff, doing Godzilla stuff. We will be signing comics. <laughs> So that's like our big that's our big immediate plug look I love Oliver's art so I'm not gonna say anything for certain but that I would hope it's not the last time that you get to see stuff from me and Oliver like that is a that's a collaboration that I'm gonna be pursuing we work well as a team anything else besides that yeah we do we work well as a team anything for you to plug Uh, you know I mean my work uh, I should have some stuff in galleries which uh, I'm gonna be announcing on my Instagram and everything um, so if you want to get like actual traditional, you know, real life, tangible things uh, rather than just like screen stuff, uh, then that's there. I will also be uh, in Long Beach. And then I think we do have uh, another signing that's postponed for a little bit later. Uh, but word will come out about that as well. Um, but yeah, other than that, shout just out. Uh, getting back on the grind, you know, more pitches, more things. Shout out what your, shout out what your Instagram Oh, just is. first and last name, Oliver Ono, O-N-O. Uh, Rosie, Oliver, this has been so great. Thank you for for coming on and talking to us. And bye, bye, Godzilla rivals, (laughs) Godzilla versus Batra from IDW now. In today's Nerd Out, where you tell us what you love and why, CJ pitches on the classic animated series Gargoyles. Hi, my name is CJ, and this is my nerd out for Disney's Gargoyles. I've been a fan of this show since it originally aired in 1994 on the Disney Afternoon, which I would watch after school. Its original appeal to me was that it was monsters that fight crime, but as I grew older, I would discover new aspects of it that uh, also appealed to me, such as uh, relationships, complex multidimensional characters, Uh, social issues such as gun control, and the very almost flawless weaving of mythologies and uh, Shakespearean or Arthurian lore, even uh, sci-fi elements. The cast was uh, an all-star cast of very famous 
uh, actors, mainly from Star Trek, but also others like Ed Asner, Keith David, Tom Wilson, Bill Fagerback, also known as Patrick Starr, and Tim Curry. I, as an adult, I even uh, advocated for a uh, revival based on the Mandalorian's uh, stage magic technology, um, being a live-action adaptation that is set in the modern day and has the twist of the cartoon being a an in-universe uh, PR campaign to kind of acclimate the public to the existence of the gargoyles. But even in modern day, they would still struggle with equal rights to humans. And uh, in an effort to deal with that, they have a partner with the Manhattan Police Department to patrol with uh, a human partner. And it would be derisively called G9 units by less open-minded people and would also focus on the next generation of gargoyles, which by now would be just now entering the equivalent of their teen years. There have been there have been sort of uh, uh, continuations in comic form, uh, mainly by a company called Slave Labor Graphics, but just announced at this year's San Diego Comic-Con, uh, Disney has partnered with Dynamite Comics to produce season four of Gargoyles, helmed by uh, the original creator of the show, Greg Wiseman, who has done other works such as Young Justice and Spectacular Spider-Man. So that's a very good sign and might be a sign of things to come. If you would like to watch the original series, it is available in its entirety on Disney+. Plus. Big thanks to CJ for submitting. If you want to be featured, we want you to be featured. Please send your nerd out pitch to x-ray at crooked.com. Instructions in the show notes. We love hearing from you. A big thank you to Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. And, of course, her collaborator, Oliver Ono. Rosie! Anything? You plugged it already. I plugged. We got, I plugged. We got your plugs. We plugs, got plugs. your plugs. Uh, for our folks, X-Ray Vision has a new home. The Take Line YouTube channel and Twitter channels are now dedicated to all things X-Ray Vision. Go check out at XRVPod on Twitter and X-Ray Vision on YouTube. And, of course, our X-Ray Vision Discord. You can find that in the show notes. Also, the Ask the Maester uh, segment will be coming back where I will answer your questions about House of the Dragon, Game of Thrones, and A Song of Ice and Fire. The email is open now. It's askthemaester, all one word, at gmail.com. You can find that in the show notes as well. Don't forget, rate and review us. X-Ray Vision with five stars. Yes, I know we said we didn't read the reviews, but, but if you give us the five-star ratings and the great reviews along with them, we know. Maybe we'll think about it. Maybe we'll feel it, if anything. We'll just feel the love, and I think that's really the important thing. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. Folks, see you next time.